Radio Mano Papachango. Chris, Michael Garfield here. We met at Burning Man last year, but I don't expect you to remember that. I just wanted to give you a note of appreciation and uh, tell you that I, I've been thinking so much about the scientific themes that have come up in your podcast, you know, the big picture stuff, and uh, I just got hired to work with the Santa Fe Institute, and we're like in it on exploring the origins of life and you know the nature of humans relationship to technology and every single day that I'm in there as this rogue who can't believe that I'm working inside a legitimate scientific institution like this um, I think of myself in light of that episode that you recorded about fecal transplants and uh, you know Philip K. Dick's statement that the divine symbols emerge in the trash stratum and wondering if I'm not, in some sense, uh, a, a fecal transplant for science, a restoration of a little humility and, and earthiness and, uh, you know, a, a little black Madonna rearing its head, I guess, <laughs> in there. And uh, you're on my mind a lot for that. So <laughs> thanks for all you do and uh, keep it up don't lose hope either. I know that it's easy to get run over thinking about the decline of civilization, but come on, do we really want the kind of civilization that is declining? I think we can do better and you know we can do better. And I applaud you and salute you for your work in helping us figure the next stage. Hey Chris, this is Kate from Jersey City, New Jersey, and I'm actually currently in Hoboken though, walking along the uh, waterfront facing Manhattan, so I got a, a pretty incredible view in front of me, and I'm coming from teaching a yoga private, I'm a yoga teacher, and then uh, tonight and tomorrow I'm casting a show that I'm producing and acting in. Um, some original work in the downtown New York theater scene. So I'm quite lucky. I just wanted to say thank you. Um, podcasts have changed my life. And yours in particular, I listen to almost every day. And I very much appreciate the opportunity to build a global community of like-minded people. It's super comforting, especially in a city that can make you feel alone a lot as well as for the opportunity to learn and constantly be a student of life. Uh, so I really appreciate all that you do. Keep doing it, please. And uh, I look forward to your book tour here in New York. I'm going to try to make it to that as well. Thanks so much. Have a great one. Hello, good people of the world. This is your host, Chris Ryan, coming to you from the van, Scarlett Johansson parked under a 
Big Ponderosa Pine Tree in the town of Crestone, Colorado. I'm recording this on my phone, so if it sounds a little um, scratchy, that's uh, because I'm recording on my phone. The audio for the conversation to follow will be of its usual excellent high quality. Uh, the conversation, by the way, this is a really special one. Um, I hope you'll definitely listen to this. If you don't like ads and you don't like listening to me ramble on, just fast forward uh, because this is a fantastic conversation with Jeff Shapiro. He is um, a very thoughtful guy. He's a base jumper, um, paraglider, hang glide pilot. Um, he's learning to fly an airplane at the moment. Uh, when we met at his place in Missoula, Montana, he had just come back from paragliding uh, through the Brooks Range in northern Alaska. Uh, essentially paragliding, landing with his buddy, setting up camp, spend the night, get back on the in the paragliders and take off the next day. Uh, he does things. Oh, he also... he flies in those fucking wing suits those flying squirrel suits amazing um and as you imagine we talk a lot about risk and proximity to death and we get into some really profound stuff and um Man, he's a he's a very interesting guy. I I very much enjoyed this. So anyway, I hope you uh, enjoy this as much as I do, and did, and will. Anyway, interesting thing happening now. My book is coming out October first. Civilized to death. If you want to read it um, and you want to do me a solid, please pre-order it. Whether it's the Kindle version or the hardback or the audio book uh they'll all be available october 1st and those pre-orders count as first week sales which pumps up the numbers and makes publishers happy and reviewers more interested and you know the whole thing sort of uh starts to snowball if you get a good launch so if you have the financial resources and the interest um that would really be appreciated by me and my publisher and my editor and you know everyone else uh, what else? Jonathan Franzen just published an interesting article in The New Yorker um, where he essentially argues that it's quite possibly no longer time to talk about averting climate disaster. It's time to start talking about how we're going to deal with climate disaster, which honestly I feel is an argument that's sort of overdue. And... Um, you know, since we've known as a species, at least those of us who believe in overwhelming scientific evidence, that we're headed toward disaster, not only have we not slowed down or changed course, we've actually sped up. Um, we're burning more carbon now than we were five years ago. Or last year. Um, there's no evidence that I can see that our species is seriously changing course in terms of our energy 
um, production. You know, there definitely there have been developments in solar and wind and so on, but um, you know, as Derek Jensen discussed in a previous episode. We're not seriously looking at consumerism. We're not looking at the fundamentals of capitalism that um, incentivize the transformation of nature into stuff, mostly plastic stuff, that we then trash into nature. We, the fundamentals of how we live on the planet are not being addressed. And anything short of that is too little. So... Anyway, Jonathan Franzen published this article, which is available online. I encourage you to read it if you're interested in these things. And um, I read it a couple days ago, and it seemed to me like, yeah, he's sort of stating the obvious. He's, you know, doing it well. He's a very good writer. Um, But nothing particularly provocative or um, sort of unexpected in the article. Well... The response has been very vehement and uh, full of ridicule and dismissal and scorn for him and for his uh, very flimsy arguments. But I haven't seen anything that really confronts the argument. What I see is a lot of emotional um, piling on. And if Civilized to Death gets attention, which is always a a big if when a book comes out, if it does get serious attention, I suspect that a lot of it will be the same sort of piling on. So I'm entering what may be a difficult period (laughs) in terms of getting trashed publicly. Um, But... You know, I think what's true is true. And I felt the same way with Sex at Dawn. I was surprised, actually, at how much of the response to Sex at Dawn was very supportive and positive and encouraging. I expected to get a lot more backlash. And maybe I'll be wrong this time, too. Who knows? But, um, you know, when you when you say something that makes people uncomfortable, they attack you. It doesn't matter if what you're saying is true or not. It doesn't matter if the knowledge of what you're saying could actually be helpful to them. If it makes them uncomfortable on an emotional level, a sort of precognitive level, most people are going to attack you. There were a couple of reviews of Sex at Dawn that um, were different from that, that didn't uh, follow that pattern. I remember one... Uh, was a sexology teacher. And in his review, he said, you know, after reading this book, I realized that I've been, what I've been teaching for the last 20 years was wrong. And I thought, man, I want to hug that dude. Not only because he wrote a positive review of Sex at Dawn, obviously, but because he had the decency and humility and fundamental courage to say I was wrong and now I'm going to do things differently even though I've been doing this for 20 years that's hard I hope I have the courage to do that I don't know if I do honestly Um, 
but it's something that's really worth aspiring to. Uh, anyway, this episode is brought to you by Sunbasket. And I think this is the last um, episode that they're sponsoring, uh, at least for the meantime. But I don't care because I love Sunbasket. My mom's getting it and she's super into it. And my mom's a great cook and kind of picky about food. And um, she is definitely loving the Sunbasket. So there's another glowing uh, report for you. If you use the following link, uh, sunbasket.com slash TS for tangentially speaking, you get 50% off your first two orders. You've probably heard me say this before. <clears throat> it works out to like five bucks a portion. Uh, and they're pretty big portions, so it might even be 250 a portion if you split it. That's, I mean, five bucks a portion. Seriously, I'm about to walk into a cafe and order. Now, admittedly, it's kind of a fancy coffee. It's a bulletproof blended coffee. It's five seventy-five. Okay, and I'm probably going to give the guy a dollar tip, six seventy-five for a fucking coffee, as opposed to Thai curry or. God knows whatever amazing dishes you can get from Sunbasket. You also get the um, cookbooks, which are full color, beautiful, glossy cookbooks. I think it's 18 different recipes every week. You get one every week with all new recipes. You keep the books. Even if you only do a couple of uh, orders and then you cancel, you keep the books. Um, they're also paleo-friendly uh, Keto-friendly, low-carb-friendly, whatever your particular dietary orientation is, they've got you covered. Organic vegetables, clean stuff, recyclable containers that they ship it in. I mean, it's hard to think of a way that this could be better or, frankly, cheaper at this point. So I hope you'll check out <clears throat> sunbasket.com forward slash TS. Tell them Chris sent you. All right, another announcement I want to make is that I have a new website up, and I'd encourage you to go check it out. Let me know if you see anything that looks weird. Um, we're, the one thing that we haven't quite figured out is how to port over comments on previous episodes of the podcast. Um, there doesn't seem to be a quick and easy way to do that. But um, other than that, the store is up. All the shirts are there. Um, please order some shirts from mom. She's very happy to send them to you. The cozies, the signed copies of the books. We'll have Civilized to Death signed copies up once we figure out, um, you know, what the shipping's going to cost and, and what my author discount is and all that kind of business. So those aren't up yet, but they will be soon. The website was designed and um, all the work of porting it over from the old website to the new website was done by a guy named Patrick. Um, he and his two brothers have a company called Wake Media, and you can reach them at wakemedia.com. Patrick contacted me, I don't know how long ago. He listens to the podcast and uh, cool guy, really enjoyed just sort of back and forth with him. And uh, at one point he said, 
you know, your website's kind of a little cluttered, a little, you know, whatever could be nicer and I'd be happy to, to work on it for you. And I just thought, man, that's a lot of work. And he said, yeah, but yeah, I could do it in downtime. And we do a pro bono thing every year and, and like your podcast. And anyway, uh, turns out his two brothers are Christopher and Ryan. So the three of them are Christopher, Patrick and Ryan. Now, if that's not destiny, I don't know what is. So when I heard that, I thought, okay, uh, let's go with this. I could use a new website. And also, I could use... Around that time, there was a lot of controversy about um, Patreon. I think Sam Harris and some other people were dropping Patreon because they've been rather capricious about um, cutting people's accounts and I haven't been thrilled with Patreon either, to be honest with you. It's, it's um, you may have noticed I haven't asked people to sign on to Patreon for months because I knew that uh, Patrick and his brothers were working on developing this new website where we'd have an independent subscription platform. Um, so I won't have to worry about Patreon deciding one day that I used too many bad words or that I offended somebody. And so they're just going to like cut me off. Um, that's my main source of income these days. So that would be pretty devastating. And, uh, so, you know, being prudent, uh, suggests that you should have your own independent setup there. Um, if you're on Patreon and you're comfortable and you don't want to move over, that's fine. Um, unless they kick me off, I'll keep it running and I'll keep engaging there. Um, but I am going to start um, putting more attention into this independent platform on my own website, chrisryanphd.com or tangentiallyspeaking.com, take you to the same place. Um, and what I'm going to do to sort of encourage people to sign up there is I'm going to do a monthly video Roma where I'll set up a camera and hopefully place myself in some visually interesting place. And I will answer questions and respond to emails and stuff from people that come through that platform. So people who are subscribed um, on that platform. So if you're up for that, I really appreciate it. Um, if you don't have cash, as always, don't worry about it. All you're going to miss out on is seeing me sitting in a chair for an hour answering questions. No big deal. Um, anyway, Wake Media. I'm going to talk about them because uh, part of the deal was if I like the website that I mention them on the web on my uh, podcast. But also because I really do like the work that they've done. Patrick has been fantastic. And so they're a branding company. They, they do web development. They do video. They do um, sort of working out what your product is, what your corporate vision is, what your identity is, all that kind of stuff. Basically, you know, the whole damn kitten caboodle. So if you have a company and you're thinking of how you're going to present yourself to the world or you think you need a change or you just need a new website or whatever it is, uh, definitely give those guys a ring. Um, get in touch at wakemedia.earth.com, wakemedia.earth. And as I said, Patrick is the guy that I've been working with, and he couldn't be cooler. He couldn't be more responsive. Um, you know, no matter what, how many tweaks I ask for, or I change my mind and I've, I'm kind of a pain in the ass sometimes. I'm not sure I love that color. I'm not sure that font works. The dude is 
upbeat and responsive and uh, smart as hell. So, uh, and I'm sure his brothers are the same, although I haven't interacted with them. WakeMedia.Earth, baby. Check it out. All right, I'm done talking. I know this has been a long one. I'll try to keep it pithy and short from now on. Um, This is my last day in Crestone from here. Heading west, back toward L.A., going to be in L.A. around the 24th at the latest, um, and between here and there, hoping to spend some time in maybe Telluride. Um, I've received some emails from people in Telluride saying, let's do a get-together, and I'd like to do that, so if the schedule permits it, I'll post that on social media. Uh, You can follow me on Instagram, of course, at that Chris Ryan, and I'm also on Twitter, that Chris Ryan, and uh, I don't really do Facebook a lot, but there is a Facebook page. Um, and then uh, Moab, if the weather's cool enough, hang out in Moab a bit and spend some time in the desert around there. And then uh, Zion and the Grand Canyon, and then just blast past Vegas and maybe stop in Joshua Tree and then back to Topanga. And then I'm going to be all over the place in October doing this book tour. So I hope to see you then, if not on the way back. All right. Thank you for listening to this. And uh, I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Jeff Shapiro. I'm going to play you out with a tune by Big Joe Turner called Flip, Flop, and Fly. Now when I get the blues, I get me a rocking chair. Get me a rocket chair Well, the blues overtake me Gonna rock right away from here Now when I get lonesome I jump on the telephone When I get lonesome I jump on the telephone I call my baby Tell I'm on my way back home Now flip, flop and fly I don't care if I die Now flip, flop and fly I don't care if I die Don't ever leave me Don't ever say goodbye Give me one more kiss Hold it a long, long time Give me one more kiss Hold it a long, long time Now love me, baby Do the feeling hits my head like wine here comes my baby, flashing a new gold dude. Here comes my baby, flashing a new gold dude. Well, she's so small, she can mumble in a payphone booth. Now flip, flop, and fly. I don't care if I die. Now flip, flop, and fly. I don't care if I die. I'm like a Mississippi bulldog sitting on a hollow stump. I'm like a Mississippi bulldog sitting on a hollow stump. 
I got so many women, I don't know which way to jump. Now flip, flop, and fly. I don't care if I die. Now flip, flop, and fly. I don't care if I die. Now don't ever leave me. Don't ever say goodbye. Oh my. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am here with Jeff Shapiro. It's one of these great things that happens where one thing leads to another and leads to another. And yesterday I didn't know who you were, and today I'm in your kitchen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the best thing about travel, right? It's yeah. like how things lead to unexpected places. Sometimes unexpected paths just light up, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, I've, I've had people on this podcast who you just were, while I was setting up the mics, you were talking about, a guy you know who crashed a DC-9. I had a guy in the podcast who um, intentionally crashed a DC-9. He was a drug smuggler. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, what what happened? They, they would, like, fly into remote airports and always changing so that the feds could never predict where they were going to be. And, um, yeah... I don't remember why he crashed in intentionally, but for some reason, like they had to get rid of the plane. So they flew one last mission, crash landed it in some airport in like Missouri or something, unloaded it, and they were out of there before anyone arrived. Wow, that's interesting. It's yeah, crazy it's a whole, whole other world for sure. Yeah, people in airplanes. So you were saying uh, you've flown uh, from, you know, just what little I've, I've read about you, you've been flying different ways uh hang gliding as well yeah yeah so uh i i got into um i've always been fascinated with the mountains and i've always been fascinated with flight human flight hmm. um i think i might have done a career report in fifth grade and it was to be a pilot you know mm-hmm. um, i've always been interested in birds um so yeah i learned how to and got really into rock climbing and and alpine climbing and ice climbing uh, at a pretty young age, it might have been 13 or 14, and um, the exposure to the mountains brought me to uh, uh, a friendship with a guy who uh, introduced me to the sport of hang gliding. And um, you know, hang gliding was kind of this um, this uh, perfect entry into that world for me because at the time I wasn't really interested in in motors. Um, I, I really liked the idea of self-sufficiency. It fit within my budget, sort of, you know, I mean, it's still relatively expensive for a dirt bag, but I think, um, you know, if you want something bad enough, you can make it happen. I, I want to say after getting into it, I, I started flying, uh, on a $350 glider that was built in 1978, had duct tape all over it. And, um, when I realized it was something that was uh, sort of life changing and important to me, I, uh, I sold my car and bought a 73 camper bus and a new glider and harness and parachute and that was the best move I ever made. Mm. Um, so I, I learned how to fly hang gliders at 17 and um, and did that primarily for a lot of years. Um, and uh, that, that, I was still climbing a lot and climbing was probably the most dominant feature in my life. Uh, well, I'm probably equal, equal only to, to hang gliding. But at some point, it must have been in 2006, I got interested uh, in competing in hang glider. And um, that was kind of a life changer because I I started racing hang gliders um, domestically and then on the pro circuit around the world uh, between 2006 and 2000, 
13 um, and it was a vehicle to take me all over the world you know I, I got to discover new cultures and uh, meet a lot of amazing people um, and see a lot of places uh, in a from a really unique perspective you know it's really interesting to <laughs> go to yeah. yeah to go to say south of France for the first time and to fly a hundred mile task in a competition uh, land in some alpine village way up in the mountains and um, get invited by a family into their home to have dinner and not speak the same language and you don't get those types of opportunities if you're just there as a as a tourist you yeah. know so uh, flying became this this vehicle for me and um, and then also over the years um, it allowed me to learn some some very valuable and, and sometimes tough lessons uh, you know flying aviation in general they say you know the like the going saying is aviation isn't inherently dangerous but it's absolutely unforgiving of human error you know so uh, being a stupid kid, yeah, I'm, I'm almost yeah, I'm in my mid forties now. But when I learned, I was just a teenager, and uh, you know, you make some mistakes and you pay some consequences, and um, you know that along with flying, or I mean, with climbing, uh, allowed me to learn some 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 pretty cool life lessons that now I can apply as a parent. You know, like um, you know, I've said it before, but like ego, especially for young dudes, you know. Um, ego and and things like ambition and wanting to wanting to accomplish those things were driving factors when I was younger um, and played into my um, sort of risk management view mitigating risks uh, involving climbing and flying but uh, as I've grown older you know I realized that those reasons are pretty stupid reasons to risk your life you know and um, so my perspective on what's important and what's trivial has evolved and I uh, owe that um, to flying mostly, um, climbing too, certainly. But um, So have you had um, close calls that were close enough for you to learn the lesson without paying for too sure. much of a price? For sure. That's the deal, right? Is, you know, we, we, um, I tell my daughter, yeah, you can do anything you want as long as you can deal with the consequences, right? Because we're all responsible and uh, even for our choices. <laughs> um to to be happy you know but uh the consequences we pay they're either expensive or they're inexpensive and the if you look at it from the right angle everything that happens whether it's perceived as good or bad is is um is a good thing because it leads to growth so i have been lucky enough to have some some very close calls and to have dealt with some carnage um and and not and been able to walk away from it and learn the lessons um which is is not always the case, you know. Well, what are the lessons? Because you're still doing it. So sure. the lesson wasn't get the hell out of this and get a yeah, job. Yeah, there's no mistake. Um, the flying and climbing, uh, even something as broad as um, a category of you know risk management or taking risks, that's not the that's not the that wasn't the mistake. Um, the mistake was not not you know was not doing it. The mistake was. Um, either being in a mindset or uh, behaving in a way that was inappropriate relative to the risk to reward ratio, you know? So uh, both, um, well, let me, let me go, go one step further. Um, hang gliding led to um, this desire to mix climbing and flying. So I got into base jumping right. and uh, base jumping led to, and the only reason I got into base jumping was this fascination with human flight. So it led to wingsuit base jumping, flying uh, with your arms in a suit. 
and um, and then has since evolved into flying paragliders in the mountains. So so now I'm I'm flying a lot of different things, and um, and they all involve this same concept, which is um, to view each opportunity uh, to participate as an opportunity to make a decision based on logic and never emotion. You know, and that's a difficult one to um, to learn because what we're out there doing is essentially looking for an emotional response, right? Like I think any fulfilling activity, um, or, you know, anything that, uh, you could categorize as a passion would maybe be described as something that you're doing for the sake of getting, um, emotional benefit, you know, to like feeling that amazing, um, sensation of growth and experience and the joy of living, you know, after you do it. Right. And um, so to not make decisions based on that is difficult. It's hard to draw those lines. Because that's what drew you to it in the first place. Of course, that's what you're after every time you go to do it. And but you're, when, you're a person with an appetite for, for that. For sure, for yeah. sure. And, um, and yet, you know, the results have changed, have evolved over the years. So, so back to the idea of making decisions. If you make a decision, uh, I want to fly as emotional. I should fly as logical. And... Um, you have to have enough experience. Ego doesn't always challenge that. Sometimes it's just that you don't know what you don't know. And so mm -hmm. you have to make decisions based on the conservative side of the line so that your mistakes, which are inevitable, will be inexpensive. Uh, you know, that we're not skiing, we're not mountain, riding mountain bikes. You can't just fall off and be okay, right? right. So that's hard to tell yourself. And, um, and then, you know, the secondary portion of that is, is that the lines between realistic danger and fear and doubt can be pretty blurry. Right. So when sometimes you think, oh, I'm just scared, I'm going to do it anyways, as opposed to listening to that little voice that's, that's trying to tell you, like, hey, man, take a step back, you know? Right. Um, you get better at that over time too, but, but that's been a challenge, uh, and something that if you're lucky, you grow into, um, you know, in the sport of base jumping, uh, certainly lost a lot of friends and, and a few of them I had to carry out of the mountains myself dead, you know, and, uh, that, that experience is, a is a pretty impacting experience. And, um, and then uh, inevitably I've had a couple of close calls in a wingsuit myself, um, that were, uh, life-changing uh, one in a hang glider I, I got sucked into a storm cloud and, and my glider was broken during a, uh, a massive thunderstorm in uh, the desert in Idaho in 2005 and that was a pretty um, impactful event for me but but did the, you parachute out of that no I, I was able to fly the broken glider to the ground it took mm -hmm. me a couple hours to get down I popped out of the cloud pretty high and um, had to figure out how to get the glider to the ground without it breaking. There was a lot of wind. I, I found that if I, or at least the, the thought occurred to me that if I had to deploy my parachute, that I would lose control completely and would bl probably blow into the mountains, um, at a speed that might not be survivable. So I wanted to do everything I could to get to the ground in, in, in some level of control. Um, but the two incidents that I've had in a wingsuit, one very recently, um, they were like as close to to you know to ending all that you can get without actually doing it and those two things i think that sort of each of us have these experiences in our lives that um you know could be considered uh you know epiphanies like not peak experiences but like real life changers something that would i think that there's only maybe a few opportunities in everybody in each of our lifetimes to um sort of reevaluate 
the original question, what's important and what's trivial, you know? And um, through those experiences, and, and it turned out that the reason uh, for me to do these things in general and to continue doing them is the same. And that's um, that I like feeling um, small. I like feeling to, uh, to, to be a small part of something much bigger, to not see the world through the filters of my own ego, but and to, to not be in control all the time, mm. to not have um, the answers, you know? Like that's what turns me on these days is, if you wanna do something, you know, if, especially if somebody else has done it, like you, you pretty much do it, you know? You just believe it to be true, you do the work, uh, you pr- prepare appropriately, and then you do it, you know? But when you have, and it's very rare in life, when you have something, um, like a, a path ahead of you or the belief that there exists some opportunity to try something and you're not sure how it's gonna go, that's that's pretty rare, you know? Like when someone says, well, how do you think it's gonna go? And you say, ah, man, I, I don't know. I don't know where I'm gonna end up today. That's but, pretty cool. But in your case, not knowing where it's gonna go when you're doing things that are as dangerous as base jumping or a wingsuit, flying a wingsuit, like, Failure isn't really an option. Right, because right? it means loss of life. So right. I'm, what I'm not saying is is that we're up there jumping off a of cliffs hoping for the best. Right. At that point, you know, when people see a video or a film of someone wingsuit base jumping, as an example, they think, oh, man, what a crazy fucker that guy is. But really what they don't see is the hours and hours and hours and hours of preparation of time spent uh, training and learning and the small steps that it took to earn the right to be there to where at that moment when you've hiked up and you've dealt with the fears and doubts and you've looked at the conditions and when you get to the exit you discover okay the conditions are appropriate for my skill set and for the activity the jump is appropriate for my level of experience and I feel okay about this um, I've triple checked my equipment I believe in what I'm going to do and by the time you zip up your arm wings and you're standing on the edge of the cliff with you know five toes hanging over. I'm a hundred percent sure that this is going to work. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I'm never going into it feeling like um, you know, like I said, uh, hoping for the best. I have a family, you know. Right, but the guys you carried out weren't they a hundred percent for sure? sure? And I think that there is a level of acceptance that. Um, we are human, we make mistakes and, um, there are no mistakes allowed. Yeah. There are no mistakes allowed. Yeah. That doesn't mean that it's not going to happen and none of us are going to get out of this alive. So, you know, you have to make those choices relative to that. The risk to reward, which is, was the original answer, Right. right? Right. Is no jump is worth it, but jumping is worth it. See what I'm saying? You know, no single jump. I can always jump tomorrow. So I've walked down from plenty of exits. Right. Um, you know, no flight is worth it. I, I don't have to fly today. Yeah. But flying. But you do have to fly. But flying allows me to experience life in a way that fulfills me um, to a point at which it's very easy to make the choice to be happy every morning. And mm. when a, I'm a happy person, then I can give. And I can't make anybody else happy. Like I can't make my wife happy or my kid happy. Um, but what I can do is make decisions and choose to be happy myself. And, you know, outwardly portray that in a way that hopefully um, is influential in in other people being able to enjoy life and certainly in my company, you know. So I think we're all responsible for ourselves. And um, the only thing I can ever hope to control in this world is my own mind. I mean, these are like very um, sort of... uh, 
simple and common sort of Buddhist principles, you know, like um, see the world as it is and not how I want it to be, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, if we do that, and for me, uh, you know, each of us is attracted to something, right, is, is drawn, some are drawn to the ocean, they love to surf or sail, you know. Some are drawn to um, the mountains, some are drawn to the desert. Uh, for me, I've always been drawn to uh, both the mountains and, and the environment in the sky because it, it allows for a sense of adventure and, and exploration that cures a, a curiosity that I've had my whole life. And, and there are environments that make me feel really small and, and that feels really good to me. It's like the biggest steps in the opportunity to learn. And I could give a shit about being good at stuff. I just want to get really? better. That's what turns me on, oh. you know, is learning. And was that the original impulse as well? Or you nah. mentioned ego and wanting to be yeah. cool? and Yeah, no, the, it wasn't so much wanting to be cool. It was just, um, it was wanting to experience always the, the original attraction was wanting to experience adventure. You know, I re- read books um, about uh, alpinists in the, in, in, you know, in the 50s and, and older, of course. Mm. Um, uh, exploring Himalayan peaks and you know it was an adventure just finding the mountain you yeah. know and um, I, that was what attracted me is these environments that are that you have to earn the right to be there right like like flying you know you can't just you can't just buy a glider on eBay and go out and do right. it like it's you know you have to earn the right and these environments are out there you know they involve um, trying to learn more about yourself and to um, be self-reliant and uh, the danger was attractive as a young kid you know uh, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't yeah. but those are the things the adventure and the exploration that turned me on originally being good at them was driven by ego right, right? Um, and uh, not saying that I am but that was that was the driving factor to trying to progress to a, a level at which I would consider good you know or, or an expert or whatever um, but over the years, you know, what I've learned or what applies to myself, I can't speak for anybody else. But for me, the most important thing is experience, mm. um, you know, experiencing life. We, we, life is pretty short. Like I said, I, I've had the opportunity to find some friends that had perished in the mountains and, and help carry them out. And um, it's, it becomes pretty real that we only have a limited amount of time, at least in this life. And, uh, you know, I don't want to go through my life wishing I had done things. Zero regrets. Yeah. Going to make mistakes. Going to have bad things happen. Uh, you can't, you know, you can't know the light without the dark. But, but I think that um, those experiences lead to a level of gratitude and appreciation for life that allows me to wake up every single morning and be like have the stoke meter pegged, you know, just, just to be breathing, you know, the stoke meter. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I mean, just, just to be breathing. Right. I'm not like, um, I'm not talking about, you know, uh, I mean, I'm a pretty mellow dude, you know, but I, I just am grateful every day. And that comes from those experiences. Yeah. I hear you. I, I, I mean, I, I'm not drawn to those sorts of experiences. I've been I'm drawn to adventure. I backpacked around the world all through my 20s and most of my 30s and hitchhiked across North America a few times. And also, for me, psychedelics were a form of adventure, sure. I think, in that same age. You Absolutely. Know, I was doing a lot of Absolutely. Uh, exploration there. Um, but when it comes, you know, I've always sort of, my mantra has been, maximum experience minimum risk yeah yeah you know that's how i've always tried to 
I've tried to do things that felt dangerous, but really weren't. Yeah. And that's, that's for each of us to, to decide where those limits lie. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I, I'm taking the, the easy way out. I mean, I never paid those dues that you're talking about. I was never fit enough to climb a serious mountain or something, you know, right. I never put in the time for that. You know, I take the gondola. Yeah, yeah, but that's that's okay. Each of us get to make those decisions, yeah. and there's no right or wrong. You know, yeah. there's no um, there's no better. I did take um, ten paragliding lessons in Goa, India, from a German guy named Uwe. Oh, cool! Uh, which was pretty a lot riskier than I knew at the time. Uh, the first day, I jumped off the mountain, and the plan was to go out over the ocean. And he had, there was an earpiece and he would talk to and tell you when to turn left and then come in and there was this valley and then you go over the lake and land on the beach. Right. And I was going out and it was that first, the first time I never did a, um, tandem or anything. It was my first time. I just, yeah. you know, ran off the side, boom, going out over, get in the harness and I'm holding the two things and just feeling that wind in my hair and the silence and going over the Indian ocean. Oh, wow. This is just mind blowing. And um, and after a while, I thought, shouldn't I be turning at some point here? And I could hear the screaming in the distance. And the I thought it was, was yeah, my yeah. earpiece had fallen out. <laughs> I'm just sailing off into the ocean. And he's like, ah, hey, hey. And uh, so that was an interesting moment because I didn't know if I'd make it back. I, I had no idea how far, sure. you know, I'd gone beyond where I was supposed to turn. And, but what I felt, and I mean, I'm sure most people feel this. there's sort of an instinctive knowledge of how fast you're declining, your sort of angle of descent. Yep. And I just instinctively knew how how to turn and where to turn. And yeah, yeah, flying. Great. Um, I think flying is a pretty intuitive thing for some people, mm. and um, being able to judge glide angle and and uh, certainly flying a paraglider is very intuitive. You know. Um, and and you know I also think that um, that although you know you say that you you've taken it the easy way or whatever that there hasn't been much risk other than this one experience paragliding I would argue that um, that risk uh, exists in in all facets of life and to different degrees but some yeah. are perceived to be less than they actually are right. Yeah. And I, I think that, um, you know, the common cliche example is, um, you know, we all know people who have who have lost their lives to cancer or something. So you just never know what's going to come, you know, and yeah. to not do something um, that you really want to do. And if you don't want to do it, then you shouldn't do it. But if to not do something uh, because of perceived risk um, hasn't for me been uh, a good enough reason to not do it, you know, um, that doesn't mean that it doesn't require being disciplined and taking it seriously and getting the proper um, instruction or getting the proper knowledge to be able to do it competently. Yeah. Um, but how do you train to fly in a wingsuit? Uh, you start with skydiving. You oh, know, you, well, you start with learning, learning as much as you can. And then, yeah, you skydive a lot. You do a lot of jumps not wearing a wingsuit, getting familiar with the canopy flight, getting familiar with the equipment, getting familiar with the process of getting into and out of an airplane um and then once you've achieved a particular level of understanding uh you start um working your way into a wingsuit out of an airplane which is actually quite safe uh with so proper during the free fall 
that's when you open your yeah your so arms so start- dur- with proper instruction basically you put a wingsuit on with with a, a level of competence um, that allows you to, to to do it the first time on your own hmm. you hop out the door um, facing the relative wind with your arm wings and your leg wing collapsed you know basically staying compact and you know two or three seconds after getting out of the door you open your arms and your legs and because the plane is moving forward you already have airspeed and you're flying mm. and um, then you just over repetition time and and good instruction you learn how to control the suit uh, in a way that gives you a, a feeling of, of um, and like I said it's very intuitive mm. of being able to to turn and to uh, dive and uh, at times slow down the suit um, with with um, total control and then deploy your parachute right. and um, and then doing that a lot and uh, if you're at all interested in flying in the mountains which is sort of what drove my um, my path then you also learn the ins and outs like you did initially with skydiving with base jumping you know by starting with simple objects like bridges learning about the equipment and one parachute system, getting um, some proper uh, guidance from a mentor, or, um, and then, um, you know, hopefully uh, you'll survive those initial years, and, and when you learn um, how to do both proficiently, then you can you can mix them on an appropriate object, and then over time, you know, you progress to the, the type of object that's appropriate to fly off uh, with a wingsuit. Um, but it's the most incredible way to fly. I yeah. mean, I... I Nothing is more bird-like like than flying a hang glider. Yeah. Um, because you're head first, you know, you're prone yeah. like a bird. Right. Y- your wings feel like they're a part of your body. Can't tell you how many times I've thermaled out with birds and felt like one of them really? felt that kinship. Because you're riding just the same. And wave. and yeah. paragliding is similar um, and offers its own pros, you know. But wingsuit, fl- flying a wingsuit in the mountains is. Uh, Man, it's spectacular. It's more like the way we dream about flying. Yeah. You're, fly- you're, so you're not in something ask, yeah. or flying yeah. under something. Like you're actually flying. You know, and you feel it in your body. Yeah, you feel the the relative wind the, uh, you, that you feel in your ears is also felt on the leading edge. And in that case, that that leading edge happens to be your arms. Right. You know? It's pretty pretty rad. <laughs> Do your fingers play any role in it? Uh, you know, if you're relaxed. Because um, you see vultures and stuff. Yeah, like yeah, not in the same way. Feathers, not in the same yeah. way. But you do have these things called grippers, which control the the aft portion of the wing a little bit towards the the outboard edges, and um, you know your fingers are resting on top of the suit in a way that you're kind of controlling that. Mm. But um, more, it's just you know, it's such an intuitive sense. You, you, Isn't it strange that we have that intuition? Yeah, it, it is. Makes you wonder about past lives right, or, right. or evolution. Like, sure. how do we know that? And why do we dream of flying so much? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've thought about that, right? In in um, sort of the deeper thought, I've thought about you know past lives certainly, and uh, and what draws us to each of these these um, environments or elements. You know, what why are some people turned on by the desert, and why are some mm. people like just feel that pull towards the ocean? Right. A very dear friend Sense of mine of is a total waterman. You know, yeah. everything he does is ocean. And he loves it, and it's just this, like he's. It's a sense of home. It's a, a place where you can reset your soul, you know. And for me, the um, the, the sky and the mountains are that way, you know. Yeah, I was just yesterday. I was camped out along this river, plains, not far from here. Sure, you know? sure. And uh, there was an eagle flying along the river, and at one point, the eagle just sort of turned, banked, and just flew around in a circle, 
couple times and then kept going on its way. And I was thinking, there's no reason. There, you know, we think about animals as if they don't play. Oh, yeah. And it's so obvious that they do. So over the years, I've also, my fascination with flight and birds brought me to falconry. So I, oh, I'm that's a, right. I read yeah, that. You yeah. have a falcon. Yeah, you? yeah. I have a, a jeer peregrine in, in the backyard right wow. now. And uh, we hunt together every season, mm-hmm. and I fly him on the reg. And, and I, I've had lots of birds over the last 20 years, but, but he's been um, kind of a family member for the last four. We imprinted him, so we've had him since he was 18 days old. Mm-hmm. And um, he's, uh, I know him, his personality like you would um, any... Uh, partner or animal that you've spent a lot of time with and uh man i'll you can definitely tell when i when we go flying you know obviously when i take his hood off and disconnect him from the leash and he launches off the fist he's on his own he can choose to fly away yeah Yeah. he can do whatever he wants and um, some days he's all business and he just wants to hunt and some days he just wants to go for a fly and it's cool to watch him and you know being so fat i've never lost that level of curiosity and sometimes i'm just like mesmerized watching him fly and even if it's just chasing starlings or something i just it's just so cool to watch him fly and inspiring you know they're the fastest right the peregrine yeah peregrines um i mean i would argue that there are other birds that are faster and that they just hadn't been measured but officially Mm. they the the word on the streets the peregrines the fastest i've seen some golden eagles come out of the sky um it was like uh watching a an egg sizzle in a pan you know it's just a they just rip a hole in the atmosphere. And hmm. jeer falcons, which are the largest falcon in North America, in a straight stoop, there, uh, it doesn't even look real, you know, yeah. when they come out of the sky. So I, I would say, you know, any bird with height as an advantage that has the experience to stoop is going to be fast. By stoop, you mean come straight down come into come straight a, down like, like a bullet into yeah. an attack on prey. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You ever read uh, F is for Falcon? Yeah. What did you think of that book? Uh, you know, it was entertaining. Yeah. Um, I think it interested um, a lot of people in in that art form. It's a contemporary thing that that yeah. a lot of people didn't know was still done. Do you think? Practiced. Did you feel it was accurate in terms of its description? Some of, of it, for yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you know, all all of us learn. Um, all of us. When I say all of us, I mean each of us that are uh, participants in contemporary falconry learn. Um, our own lessons and apply those to our falconry in, in individual ways. So, you know, who, who's to say what's right or wrong? Yeah. Yeah. I was struck by the description of the the animals having really no personality is, was the way she was. Which, which, which I would disagree with. Yeah. A hundred percent. Every single bird I've ever had has its own personality. Yeah. Um, and I think what she meant or, you know, the sentiment was that, there's no living creature on earth today that's a closer relative to a dinosaur than a falconiform. Mm. Even more so than crocodilians and reptiles. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. So um, they're very simple in some ways. Right. Um, and some more than others, certainly. But, you know, they don't understand discipline. There's no such thing in, in a raptor's mind. Um, they're fight or flight. They're either going to grab you or they're going to fly away. That's right. their reaction. So. Falconry is this mix of um, well, it's a it's a it's a built partnership based on trust, positive reinforcement, and consistency. So you're you're basically you know you, we don't teach these birds how to fly or how to hunt. They do that genetically, even yeah. when they're not raised by their parents. Right. But what we do do is create an advantage in their life where they see that we're an active partner 
towards their success as a hunter. Mm-hmm. And if we provide three things, you know, a safe place to roost at night, food to eat every day, and the greatest reward, which is to chase, catch, and kill shit, which is what they love to do most, mm-hmm. um, then they'll they'll continue to uh, see you as an advantage and they'll stick around. So it's pure self-interest. So you have to um, you have to promote the behavior you're after through yeah. positive reinforcement and it has to be consistent because you make a mistake with a bird, they'll never forget it. Never. Really? Yeah. So it's it's a really unique partnership and uh-huh. it's it's pretty cool to be sort of witness and a participant in in what happens naturally anyways. How old's your daughter? She's 15. And how has being a father changed your perspective on what you do? Well, I mean, I always say, like, I've been called a lot of things, some good, some bad, but uh, dad is for, for sure the coolest, you know. Yeah. Um, luckily for me, uh, my daughter is an amazing human. She's just um, very thoughtful and empathetic and um, can have an intelligent conversation with an adult and, and uh, treat a seven-year-old with kindness. You know, she's mm. an amazing person, and I learned from her a lot. Um, she influences my life a lot. It it has affected the way I look at life. It hasn't changed my interest in the things that I'm passionate in doing, but it's changed my behavior. Um, you know, I consider uh, my family, um, and I think you know, I've I've received quite a bit of uh, mixed opinions and emotions from people relative to risk and being a father. I imagine, yeah, like people feel free to criticize for you sure. in a way they wouldn't and it's forgivable because what they're doing is they're telling me how they feel about themselves and that's fine you know like when someone criticizes or judges someone else generally it's it's a description of how they feel about themselves you know uh, I think it's stupid that you fly as a father that's saying I would never do that because I think that for me the risk would be too high as a parent and you know we're all different I don't get to judge someone I got enough to work on looking in the mirror to be pointing my finger at anybody else right. but but I, I do understand where it comes from, and, um, and that's okay. It's also okay for me to say, well, you know, uh, that I respect your opinion, but, but um, you obviously don't understand the reasons why I do the things that I do, and you can't because I can't give my emotional experiences to you. Hmm. Like, I can't explain it in a way that you would get it. Right. Um, which is, you know, an interesting concept because um, I think that it has a lot to do with the reason why these days most of the things that I love to do flying and climbing is more about the friendships and the relationships that I form in the mountains you know Mm. these partnerships right and the reason I think is because of that I can't explain how important and impacting these experiences are but when you're with someone who's doing the same thing or has done the same thing you don't have to you can just have a whiskey at the end of the day and, and both like, you know, look over the table and smile and nod your head and know that, that they've seen what you've seen. And that, that's, that's makes those experiences a little less lonely. You know, it's pretty cool. It reminds me of that expression. Those who talk don't know those who know don't need to talk. That's it. Yeah. Quiet, yeah. quiet in the mouth and loud in action. That's right. the way I hope to try and live my life. You know, do you ever think that, that what you're doing is in some way sort of, um, What's, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a stand-in for initiatory rights, um, like a warrior approach to life? You know, it's so funny that you'd say that. Um, a, f- a good friend of mine uh, who we, you know, been, we've had over the years some conversations about 
when it's time or appropriate to get up from the table and walk away relative to base jumping you know you lose a bunch of friends you start to question how worth it is it yeah. and uh, he, his point was that was like man if this was like four thousand years ago and we were um you know you had some vision quest or some rite of passage that allowed you to transfer from one um one sort of mentality or stage in life to the next yeah and wingsuit base jumping was that You'd only have to do it once and your whole life would be different. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. So why do we continue to do these things? Well, I think um, we learn lessons um, and it's not a lesson that can be described with a word or a sentence, but it's fleeting. It does go away. Oh, really? Yeah, I think you get back into the routine of life and you start, you know how time is relative? Like time goes by really fast when you're thinking about what you have to do next week or next month or looking forward to a vacation or something else. Yeah. But when you're doing something, like when you're in the present and you're, you're, you recognize that all we have is here and now, time is very slow, you know? A week feels like a year. And um, I think that, uh, you know, I mean, per- personally, I think that um, when he said that, um, I think that he, he was correct but i also think that uh when we fall into that routine of of what's going to happen next and um you know i find myself i can only speak for myself but i find myself getting annoyed in traffic you know uh being bummed that i i have this to do or that to do and that's just silly it's just stupid right because after a a jump or a flight or something i land and i you know, I get home and I see the world um, as as it is and in, in, in the way that I'm grateful to be a part of it. And the seven minutes that it takes me to drive my daughter home from school and that conversation, which might, for someone who's thinking about work tomorrow, be trivial. For me, it means something. I pay attention to every second of it. Um, is there a way that you could take the lesson that you learn? I'm thinking about, you know, that line, I think Terrence, who said Alan Watts, I think said, uh, when you talking about psychedelics, he said, when you get the message, hang up the phone, like you don't need to do psychedelics your whole life. For sure. You know, you can sort of get a perspective that's informed by them. And I think that's correct. Can you do that? Do you think there will come a time in your life where you're like, okay, I've learned that fleeting lesson enough times now that there's a structural change in my it's mind. Ha- yeah, absolutely. And I don't need to do it. Now I can meditate or do a, float tank or absolutely go for a walk or whatever absolutely yeah i think that the reaction or the response um the result that we get from doing those things can be found with a quiet mind it's just way more difficult you know like you jump off a cliff you're in the you're in the you're in the flow whether you like it or not (laughs) you know that's why people ask like how long was your flight i don't don't know you know 45 seconds it could have been eight hours you know because time doesn't matter right do you ever think you're dreaming yes and sometimes uh this is an interesting concept speaking of psychedelics uh i've had uh this twice i've had really near near death experiences where for about two weeks i sort of walked around in a stupor wondering maybe i did die like maybe this is like the next thing because life was so amazing, you know, like, so you went to heaven. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, whatever, a version of it or whatever, yeah. you know, just that, that multiple realities exist, um, clearly. And that, you know, in one form or another, maybe I did go through something that changed me in a way that, um, was 
an epiphany similar to death. You know, like Joseph Campbell says, mm-hmm. we only, most people only have an epiphany three times in life when we're born, when we first truly feel love, and then when we die. Mm-hmm. And usually an epiphany only happens when there's like um, a heavy duty near, like a near death experience, the death of a child, something like that, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, whatever. I, I do think that there is a time to get up from the table and walk away. And that doesn't mean that that stage or that, that that level of learning or experience it has to end either you know right. um, you can still go climbing just not necessarily yeah, the same or flying or whatever you know just because i'm not i there was a time in life where wingsuit base jumping was was um was imp- important enough to me that i was willing to make it a priority in every way and that's that time has come and passed mm. um it doesn't mean that i still don't love flying uh, you know, I'm learning how to fly airplanes. I fly paragliders passionately. I just got back from Alaska last week where we tried to, um, do what's called a vault biv, which translates in France to fly camp. Basically. Um, we started at the hall road, uh, and tried to fly across the Anwar, the Arctic national wildlife refuge in the Brooks range, which is the largest intact wilderness in the, in, in North America. And just the adventure of carrying, um, being sort of you know self-supportive for it was nine days at a time we did get one food drop in the middle by a bush pilot friend of mine but just the two of us in the wilderness carrying everything we needed on our backs to Mm -hmm. hike and fly our paragliders across wilderness for 18 days so when you were flying you carried your gear yeah yeah i had 65 pounds on my back when i was hiking and 50 pounds in the harness when we were flying but when it's supported by the paraglider, you don't feel it. Right. So, you know, as soon as you get off the mountain, if you can use thermals and dynamic lift, wind, you know, to travel, then that's travel you don't have to do by foot, right. which there is a huge advantage. It's a lot walk- of muskeg. Oh, man, walking on tussock. And um, I would choose to walk in knee-deep isothermic snow over tussock yeah. any, t- any day. Yeah. Any day. It's you it's see, horrible. It's it, sponge and it's mosquitoes like, uh, everywhere. Exactly. I describe it to yeah. people. It's like 14 inches of kitchen sponge glued to soccer balls and water in between all of them, you yeah. know, and that's what it's like walking. Yeah. But um, it, it was incredibly adventurous and super fulfilling, <laughs> and we had no idea where we were going to end up every day. Yeah. And, you know, I got to howl back and forth with wolves, uh, got to follow fresh bear tracks, got to fly, you know, whatever 50 miles over oceans of mountains and um, land in the middle of nowhere because there's no trails there's no roads there's no people for hundreds and hundreds of miles so you know even though i'm not wingsuit base jumping as much anymore i'm still enjoying flight and adventure and exploration in a way that fulfills me and fits into uh the realm of of continuing the most important path and for me that's to learn that's to learn what's out there and and what i'm capable of and and then to take that experience and apply it to um, the humility and gratitude of being able to come home and enjoy my family in a way that um, that maybe I didn't have the capacity to do so before those things, you know. I was thinking about um, comfort. Comfort's Ever, overrated. <laughs> well, clearly, right? Because the way we... So I was thinking about comfort at the same time I was reading this book uh, called uh, Anti-Fragile. Yep. You ever heard of that book? Yeah, yeah. The the idea of the book that I found so, I mean, the book itself, I didn't really love, but the idea is incredible. When you think about fragility, most people think of maybe champagne glass in a, in a wooden box. You shake it and it shatters, right? And then if, if we say, okay, think of the opposite of that. Think of anti-fragile. 
Most people would think of a brick in the box. You shake the box, nothing happens. But his point is that's not the opposite. That's neutral. The opposite is something you put in the box, you shake it, it gets stronger. Right. Like muscle right. or immune system. Or the mind. Or the mind, a relationship, you know, whatever. Anything, so many things, especially organic things. Right. They grow in response to challenge. Right. As long as it doesn't destroy them, right? Absolutely. If the challenge is too strong. And I was thinking about that in terms of comfort and how we often think, I think the conventional view of comfort is comfort is the absence of discomfort. But then I thought, no, comfort, that the absence of discomfort is the brick. True comfort is proximity to extreme discomfort and not being broken by it. So like I think of, you know, being in Alaska in a little tent and the rain's pouring down or swarms of mosquitoes everywhere and I'm in there in my down sleeping bag and I've got a bottle of wine and a little, you know, Walkman with my cassette tapes back in the 80s and, you know, some cheese and nuts and, you know, and I'm fucking thrilled. I, right. you know, right. so much happier than sitting in a restaurant in New York or, you know, whatever easy sure. comfort, you sure. know. I feel like there's some insight there for life that as we get money, what do we do? We, we get air conditioning and tinted windows and we stay in the expensive hotel rather than the, the rowdy guest house that we used to stay in when we were younger. And now we don't meet anybody. Well, those levels are, are just perspective, you know. Um, you know, we, you know, it's funny, we refer to it as type two fun, right? Where something that you do is only fun after it's done. Yeah. Uh, right. So like I go climbing in the Himalayas and we do this new route and to accomplish that, uh, the, because it's so steep, there's nowhere to, to lay down. You have to chop a bucket in the ice and sit down in your sleeping bag all night at 22,000 feet. <laughs> and, um, and it sucks. You suffer, yeah. you know, but, yeah. but then you do the route right. and you get back to the base safely and you come home from far East Tibet and it's the best thing you've ever done in your life right it's mm. added something to your life in yeah. a way that you couldn't have earned unless you suffered that way so i think that those things are important in the same example um that you used being in the tent and listening to uh whatever a podcast or music on your on your device um out of the rain is only comfortable if you just came out of the rain after hiking five miles in the tussock yeah. uh, following bear tracks with lightning over your head and wondering, you know, um, if you, if, if things were going to turn out okay, you yeah. know? So those two perspectives are, um, I think are, are necessary for the result to be, uh, you know, the way that it would, that it would be. And then on top of that, I think, um, you know, if I travel around the world and I see, um, kids who have nothing, they live in a split bamboo shack with a dirt floor and no plumbing, no electricity, and they're the happiest kids in the world. Mm. And then you see, um, some rich dude in the States that has three Mercedes in the garage and he just doesn't know which one to drive today. And he, he does nothing but complain about life all the time. What I realize is that it doesn't really matter if you live in a nice house or if you have the air conditioning and the tinted windows in the same way that uh, no one's going to make me happy. It becomes a choice that we make every morning to see the world around us in a way that either we appreciate or we expect. And expectations obviously lead to nothing but disappointment, right? So, I mean, I, I do think that um, the idea of comfort and the idea of uh, 
of say suffering or trials and tribulations. I don't know how you would, whatever, however people would want to refer to it. Those growth um, providing experiences um, can be large or small, extreme or or minor, but um, but they affect all of us differently, and uh, and that's the beauty of life, you know. Yeah, and over your lifespan, they're going to affect you differently. Sure. Yeah, and geez, like you know, uh, I I got into and, and enjoy running in the mountains just because it's it's not I'm not a run. I always joke that I'm a climber who pretends to be a runner sometimes, you know. But it does aid uh, in. Um, you know my preparation for the things that I like to do mm -hmm. so I I've done a few uh, runs that are 50 miles or more and and um, and you know when you run 10 miles in the mountains you, you know you're either gonna feel good or you're gonna feel bad or you're gonna feel okay but if you run 50 miles in the mountains you're pretty much guaranteed to feel all those things you know and so those moments of feeling great and feeling light and and then those moments of feeling like you just want to curl up in the fetal position in a bush and puke your guts out you know both of those are necessary to that experience giving you all that it offers you know so i think it's necessary i think you you have to feel carnage and and um, darkness and and uh you know the pain and the suffering that's involved in life to be able to stand up in the morning and say man life is amazing you know it's just necessary it just has to be that way you know i was just staying with a guy in uh, idaho a couple days ago who was um uh, Marine for eight years, and then he was on a SWAT team. Yeah. So much of what you're saying reminds me of his experiences. Yeah. Because he just wanted to go to the edge. He wanted to, like, be with a group of guys who were all f firing on all cylinders, who knew exactly what they were doing, who were really good at what they were doing. Like, he just wanted that excellence in himself and to have that sense of bonding with people yeah. he respected at that level and when i hear you talking about people you meet flying or climbing and the bonds and you don't need to talk about it you just have a whiskey in the bar it's so similar it's, it's exactly the same and in fact um a large percentage of the community that that base jumps in particular are military guys mm. or, or women you know people who have experienced a lot of, of really intense um, situations in intense environments. Um, and I think that there's a sense of community and like-mindedness that, um, that they're seeking in this, this community, the base jumping community. Um, you know, I think... Uh, shared suffering, too. Yeah, yeah. This, this, this um, camaraderie and this, this sense of, of like very, very, very strong levels of connection with other human beings um, that comes from suffering together. But know? when you lose someone, it must be excruciating. It is, uh, especially in that sport, because because of that exact same reason. The reason why I, I'm not a, uh, I've never been in the military, I've never been to war. Um, I have unlimited amounts of respect for, for the people who are, um, fighting for what they believe in, uh, but um, I do think that when you do those types or have those types of experiences um, that involve risk and overcoming fears and doubts and all of these things that uh, relate to intense human experience, that the friendships and the bonds that you form with the people that you do them with are um, the strongest that you can that you can form. Yeah. And so when um, when someone in, in battle loses buddies that they've been fighting shoulder to shoulder with in the same sense that 
when I'm on an exit and a buddy jumps off a cliff, um, says, Hey, love you, bro. I'll see you at the bottom. And then you hear the sound and you see him die. Um, that, that experience, uh, it does a lot to, um, to shape the rest of your life in a way that, uh, that both increases your capacity to have those types of relationships, but also, um, maybe for me, it's put up a little bit of a guard and I tend to now after experiencing it way too much, um, I'll choose to emotionally divest from certain people when I sense that pattern. You know, when I, when I, they're taking, they're not making the right calculations. Yeah. 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 Or that there's maybe some ego involved or there's, uh, an agenda. Um, you know, I, 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 um, maybe it's exposure to it. Maybe it's what I see in myself, but I, I, um, have gained this sense about certain people and I'm finding myself being a little more shielding towards it, you know, which is, um, a little bit counterintuitive because, um, you know, although I'm, I was drawn to that and I'm drawn to that and still in some ways, um, that loss is tough. It's hard. And, uh, you know, we all get to choose who we share our time with. And, um, I think that doing things for the right reasons is a, is a statement that is defined by each of us, um, uniquely. And so, you know, we have to, choose to share time with people who will add to our lives and um and i think sometimes those relationships can be uh intense enough that the, the loss um ends up affecting your entire life and i and i've yeah. I felt that I've, I've been in some some pretty you know uh some pretty dark places but i've also um had the the uh, the privilege to be able to help some other friends and talk through some of that when they're experiencing the same thing so you know, maybe that's the reason, right? Maybe we we're all sort of experiencing things with the with the um, the result being that we can we can help each other. You know, you say you're forty. Forty four. Forty four. So is that in the world of the world that you you're in? Yeah, is I'm you're becoming a, a mentor. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I am or not, but uh, yeah, I feel it's funny. I always joke that if I feel like uh, you know my brain feels like I'm fourteen and my body feels like I'm sixty four, that makes me just about forty four. You know. <laughs> But I, uh, I've been um, really fortunate enough to have been doing the things that I love for quite a while now. You know, I've been flying for whatever, 28 years and climbing for almost 30. What's the average age of a wingsuit? Nah, you know, I don't know if there is an average age. Um, I think there's an average lifespan. <laughs> mm. But but I think, um, I think that, yeah, most of my friends that do it are younger than me, but not all of them. I know some dudes that are older than me, mm. uh, you know, it's more a level of proficiency than an age thing. Um, although the reasons change, I think with age, I, I, I noticed that for sure. Um, certainly in aviation, uh, there's still, I would say uh, probably almost the majority of pilots that I know that fly hang gliders in particular, but paragliders too, are as old, if not older than me. Um, climbing, ah, ages from wherever, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I have a buddy who's 79 that still rock climbs passionately. He's it's just such a inspiration and um you know clearly the younger generations coming up and climbing routes that i put up uh easier than it than than i you know mm. with an easier time than i had doing them um and it's inspiring you see these 20 year old dudes or women firing stuff that we didn't even think was possible in our 20s you know where'd you grow up i grew up north of seattle 
and I spent a few months every year from the time I was born until I was 17 in Hawaii. Oh. So mostly Seattle. I went to high school in Seattle. Um, went to college in Seattle. And uh, the Cascades, sort of your backyard. The Cascades were the backyard. I learned how to rock climb at a spot called Inde- Mount Index. Um, it's a little, Index is a little town uh, off the highway on the way through Stevens Pass from from. Yeah, um, I was just there not long ago. Yeah, yeah, I love trip. Index. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, and then you know ventured out from there, and um, I, I have a degree in industrial design and was. Um, helping to design and build indoor climbing gyms in my younger years mm. and I uh, had an opportunity to build a climbing gym in Montana and so my wife Kara and I moved here in 97 and we've been here ever since so we sort of feel like we're from Montana now it's been 22 years or something yeah but um but yeah that's where I grew up and how much of the year do you spend on the road boy it seems like it's increased a lot uh as since I stopped um you know working what most we consider normal jobs and started making a living as a as an athlete um i probably travel uh, four to six months a year yeah seems like i have a buddy kyle tierman uh, if you've ever heard of him he, he does a podcast as well but he's a big wave surfer and sponsored by patagonia mm-hmm. he's got an app on his phone we'll be hanging out and it'll start beeping it's like oh Big swell coming into Botswana. I don't yeah, even know go. if Botswana has a coast, but yeah, Namibia, that's where it is. And he's like, yeah, got to go. Got to be there in three days. And that's that's the way Off. it is. You know, yeah. almost every month there's something and um, opportunities. And luckily, um, the companies that I work with are like family. You know, they're just the most amazing people, right? Mm. Um, you know, the folks at Cavu, which is a lifestyle clothing company in Seattle, those guys literally are their family to us mm. and um you know uh the guys at garmin the guys at uh, rab the guys at keen all these companies that we have the uh, privilege to work with support not only um my interests but also the fact that i'm uh that i have a healthy family and um and if I can, I bring my family with me. Mm. Obviously, a six-week expedition to the Himalayas is not something that my right. partner or my kid are interested. They're not, they're not going to hang out in the Himalayas for right. in a tent for that six long. weeks in Kathmandu. But if I can, you know, if I'm doing a project in Chamonix or I'm doing a project in uh, Colombia or Nicaragua or somewhere that's interesting culture and kind of mm. fun for them to, then I take them if I can. That's great. And um, and that's been wonderful. Um, but yeah, yeah, I travel a lot and, um, and I try as hard as I can. You know, my, my kiddo and I are as tight as, as ever, you know, thick as thieves. And I, we, we talk a lot about the time that I'm away and, and uh, I, I try and get a finger on the pulse as to how she feels about things. But um, when I'm gone, I might, be, I might have to focus on what I'm doing, you know. But when I'm home, I try and be home 100%. Right, right. Uh, Doreen mentioned that you are also helping to raise money for projects in in other countries. What's the so so yeah when I in um I, it was like the must have been two thousand and ten or so I you know honestly I'm ashamed to admit I don't remember the year but um a, f- a couple of friends and I in the hang gliding community started a nonprofit called the Cloud Base Foundation and um, it's never been anything that I promoted individually. Uh, as part of like what I do, but it's something that I've, I've sort of considered one of the greatest privileges I've ever had in life, you know, is to just help 
to be a small part of making a difference in people's lives, you know. So the cloud-based foundation is 100% volunteer. The only people we pay very occasionally are um, for web development and accounting, but 100% of all proceeds goes to these projects and our emphasis is on projects that are sustainable and projects that we can have somebody on the ground uh, supervising so that we know what's going on. Mm -hmm. It's not, we're not an NGO. We 21% of donation isn't going to a government for them to decide what to do with it. Right. We, when we did earthquake relief in, in uh, Nepal, as an example, mm -hmm. we would Western Union ten twenty thousand dollars $20,000 in cash and somebody that was part of the cloud-based foundation would put it in a bag and hand carry it to where it needed to go, right. you know? Right. Um, and in Doreen's case, you know, she's been, uh, uh, you know, an absolutely necessary, um, you know, participant or, you know, played the role or, or whatever to make sure that, um, that the aid that we can, that we could generate went to the right place and, and was supervised to do the things that we wanted and wanted to accomplish in this case, clean water, which is a sustainable life giving right. thing. Right. So those are the things we try and, um, we try and support our sustainable life changing, uh, projects that involve, um, helping communities where we fly because, you know, there's so many nonprofits, we needed to create a mission that was unique and that had uh, an audience and um, potentially a pool of donors that were passionate about something and wanted to contribute uh, relative to their community. So uh, when it comes to uh, the cloud-based foundation, anything that involves um, hang gliding or paragliding, free flight around the world, those communities, you know, basically the way it came, came about was we got sick of being affluent Americans traveling with hang gliders to race in countries where we would land on the beach and some, you know, some kid would uh, come up and, and, you know, grab me by the shirt and give me his last hand of rice with a big smile, only to see him the next day searching through the landfill looking for two shoes that matched or for lamp cords to splice together to try and climb a power pole and bring a light bulb into their, into their shack, you know. Yeah. And so how do we help these people? And, um, and uh, in the form of ed education, sometimes medication, um, you know, uh, clean water. So if you help kids, you educate kids, what does that do? First of all, it allows for them to have and create opportunities for the, their entire lives. It also inspires the next generation to want more, to, to do more. Um, most of these kids, they'll grow into a profession that will come back to their village, their local community and help them, uh, over the years. Um, you know, one of our projects is to take trash plastic in India, uh, at a site, um, a, a flying site in Beer, India, which is close to Manali, um, up in the Northern part of India towards, towards like, uh, the Himachal Pradesh, um, and to recycle that plastic into barrier walls and into um, art projects and into um, you know ways that support building the community and cleaning the community up mm. and um, creating jobs and uh, it's been a, a really successful project you know so right. so this this project in Africa that Doreen's working on we're taking a gravity fed freshwater system that comes out of the mountains and um, uh, 
enhancing it with a rain catchment system that drops into a few new cisterns because their storage tanks were cracked and contaminated right. um, and will give uh, the, the local Maasai school, which also helps to um, service the entire community around that area uh, with clean water through the dry season, which is, you know, it's life changing. When those kids chase vehicles with Westerners and they're, they're screaming with buckets and laughing and chasing the cars, they're not asking for money or for food. They're asking for water. Right. And, um, you know, in America, when we just turn the faucets on, we don't have any appreciation for that. So, yeah. And so this is a nonprofit, so people can donate and it's tax deductible. Yeah, exactly. We have the, the nonprofit status and you can go onto the website. Um, cloud-based foundation is very easy to search on any search engine. And, um, and there's lots of projects to learn about and Mm. to contribute to. And And you can earmark your money for specific. You can, yeah, you can. And it's all tax deductible. And, and, um, and we do have a general fund that goes towards, it's voted on by a a board of directors and it goes towards, you know, various projects, but they're all, um, publicly explained and you can learn a lot just by calling, you know, myself or, or the president is Patrick, you can reach out online, uh, Patrick choice. And, you know, we do what we can and, and, um, and hopefully at the end of the day, uh, some lives are changed in a positive way. Yeah. Sweet. Thanks. Cloud based foundation dot something. So, yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> Order it's done. Com, think, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Look it up. Look it up. People. I know. It's so bad. <laughs> Thanks for doing this, man. Oh, thanks for coming. Yeah, it's been a great, great uh, opportunity to meet you. Yeah, it's cool. You too. Cool dude, huh? I really enjoyed that. Um, Yeah, I don't know if, did we talk in the, I don't know if we talked about him being a falconer as well. If you want to see his beautiful falcon. Oh my God. Um, We took some pictures. And so I'll post those on the website of Jeff and his falcon. What a cool dude. I mean... It's it's interesting how people latch on to something and it becomes their identity. And I don't know, I guess it's one of these great questions. Was Jeff born needing to fly? Or was it just circumstance that led him into, you know, taking that first flight and then that led to more and more and more. And next thing you know, he's got a Falcon in an airplane and he's jumping off cliffs. And how, how does that happen? You know, it reminds me of my friend, Kevin Johnson, um, who's been on this podcast a couple of times who designs, um, float chambers and is also a cave diver, a serious cave diver, darkness, silence, solitude, Right. I mean, there's this thread running through his life, through his identity, um, similar to Jeff's. Jeff's is in the sky. Kevin's is in the darkness. Very interesting. Anyway, I love doing this podcast. I hope that comes through. I hope you can feel like, damn, Chris has fun doing this shit because I really do. I feel so privileged um, to be able to do this essentially for a living, a humble living, but it's a living. And uh, that's because of you. Thank you. If you want to be one of the first people to sign up on the new platform, go to chrisryanphd.com or tangentiallyspeaking.com and you'll see the subscribe button. And as I said, that'll bring you... um, Oh, I didn't mention also in the the beginning, another perk is free downloads of eBooks. We just have a new one coming out uh, now 
which is a, a compilation of some conversations from the podcast about drugs. And there's another one about sex coming out soon. And of course, the tangentially reading book that's already out. That's all included if you subscribe at the new on the new system. Uh, what else? This episode was brought to you by Sunbasket. Sunbasket, easy, healthy, delicious. Come on, what else do you need? And cheap, 50% off your first two orders. If you use the link on my website or you go to sunbasket.com forward slash TS. All right, catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Okay, mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You want to shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground